Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and as normal, I'm being joined this week by Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, let's kick off this week by having a quick look at the performance statistics, as we always do this week. Uh, Perhaps you could also put them in a slightly broader context about what's been happening so far this year. So this week has actually not been too bad a week for the markets. Uh, We've seen the FTSE all share probably up about three, three and a half percent. And there's been some up days and some down days, but net net, uh, it's not been a bad week. Investment companies probably lagged a little bit through the course of the week. But overall, again, a positive week up over three percent. Year to date, though, it's a bit of a different story. So clearly, as everybody will know, it has been a a tough year for investors. And in fact, the all share is down around about 20 percent. The FTSE all share down 20 percent so far. This year, but actually, investment companies, uh, although have not uh, been immune to what's been going on in the marketplace, have done considerably better. So down only about nine percent. So that's on a relative basis some some considerable outperformance of the wider UK market. What's the main reason for that? I mean, we can see obviously there's the inherent quality of the investment trusts uh, in the index, but I guess it's also a little bit of story about what the makeup of the uh, investment trust sector is these days. That's right. So um, if you look at the um, investment companies that form part of the, the FTSE All Shares, of which there are probably just short of 200 or so, the majority have outperformed the fall in the UK market this year. But it's particularly true for those largest investment companies. If you look at the 20 largest investment companies, somewhere around 17, 18 of those top 20 have actually outperformed this year. And again, if you look through that list of those largest investment companies, you'll see some familiar names such as Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. I know we've talked a few times about on this podcast, uh, has had uh, a very, very strong year, not just in terms of relative performance, but actually in absolute performance, benefiting hugely from the performance of its underlying holdings. And that's true for a number of those largest investment companies, many of whom have significant overseas exposure, so they're not wedded to the UK market. So they too are benefiting from the performance that we're seeing in the US market. And aside from those funds investing just in equities, you've got a number of infrastructure names as well. Uh, And clearly infrastructure has had uh, a good year on a relative basis so far this year, Um, still proven to be in demand, not least because of the attractive yields that the infrastructure funds offer. So those things combined have meant that investment companies have enjoyed a good year so far. I suppose another way of reflecting on that is to say that you get a broader element of diversification in some extent by investing in these large investment companies just by the virtue of the fact that they tend to be more invested globally. So you get more geographical diversification and they also diversified by dint of the kind of things that they're doing, in particular the infrastructure funds have a very different kind of risk reward profile to uh, the conventional equity investment trust and also indeed the FTSE all share itself, which tends to be relatively but not absolutely UK focused. And that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, certainly by uh, looking at investment companies, you've got a far broader range of asset classes actually within the investment companies universe. Again, we've talked about this before with private equity, commercial property, infrastructure, as well as equities. Uh, and a broad geographical reach as well. Uh, I mean, a number of investment companies have exposure to to overseas markets, including some that are predominantly focused on the UK, but uh, use the structure to broaden their holdings out. So that's obviously served as well this year in particular, and the UK market has been uh, relatively weak compared to some other markets around the world. Well, let's have a look at one or two of the investment companies that have been either 
making announcements or uh, issuing uh, results and so on this week. There's been a couple of manager changes. These are always interesting when the investment manager of a trust uh, is changed or leaves or is replaced. And we've seen a couple of those in the last uh, few days. I'm referring to uh, Mark Barnett and also to Lucy McDonald, two fund managers who are no longer in post. But the reasons there are, are perhaps not quite identical. Can you just explain what's been happening in those two cases? So Mark Barnett uh, was the head of UK equities at Invesco. And at one stage, a number of years ago, he was responsible for four uh, investment trust portfolios that had dwindled to two towards the end of last year. But then Edinburgh Investment Trust announced that it was moving to Majedi. And actually, uh, a month or two ago, Perpetual Income and Growth announced a manager review with the intention to move that fund as well. So for the time being, following Mark's departure, uh, Perpetual Income and Growth will be managed by Martin Walker, who worked with uh, Mark for a number of years and so will retain the same uh, approach. Uh, But really, I think the reason for Mark's departure was one of performance. Uh, It's fair to say that his mandates had struggled, particularly since 2016. On the long-term basis, he performed extremely well, but the last four or five years or so have been a struggle for him. Different story with uh, Lucy McDonald, uh, who was responsible for Brunner. Basically, that's part of the uh, Allianz Global Investors Stable. And in that particular instance, Allianz have two uh, global equities team. Uh, one were based in, in, uh, in London, uh, which Lucy was part of, and there was another team in Frankfurt. Uh, and they'd made the decision internally that that didn't quite make sense to have two uh, global equities team. They wanted to merge them. Uh, and unfortunately, as a result of that, there were, were changes made to uh, some of the names and some of the personnel, and uh, Lucy has left the company. But there's a chap called Matthew Tillett uh, has uh, taken over with regards to Brunner, uh, and he's been working with Lucy for a number of years, and, and he's a he's a familiar face for those people who have followed Brunner. He's been very involved with that portfolio for a number of years, so we'd see that as very much a continuation of that particular in- investment management approach. I suppose the interesting question there is that when you have a firm with uh, like Allianz in this case, who has more than one team of uh, professionals studying a particular market or style of market or a global franchise in this case. I mean, that often happens as a result of mergers and acquisitions and so on, because otherwise it doesn't seem to make much sense. And presumably, there's also an implication. They're not actually doing the same thing necessarily. There may be different styles between one team and another. But what you're saying here is, would we expect that the investment style will continue as before because it's coming out of the same team as before or do you think it might lead to a change in strategy at some point no that's a really good point and and, and to be fair the frankfurt team um have been uh, known for having a more growth orientated investment approach and clearly that's been uh, a successful strategy over a number of years whereas the london team probably had a bit more of a value bias to it so i mean certainly one of the things that we do at winsford on the research desk is monitor when we do see uh, changes to management teams whether it does result in investment approaches and investment styles, because clearly that can have uh, quite a big influence on how an investment company will perform going forward. So to answer your question, that that's something that we'll be keeping an eye on. But Matthew Tillett does represent continuity in terms of he's someone that's been familiar and been working with that portfolio for a number of years. So you mentioned investment styles, and that's uh, in the case of, you mentioned Mark Barnett, obviously, who's now left Invesco who was very closely associated with what we call the value style. In other words, looking for shares that look and possibly hopefully are cheap relative either to their own history or relative to other companies that are trading in the stock market. 
But of course, Mark Barnett has been thought of often as a protege of Neil Woodford, who is, uh, of course, will need no introduction and has also uh, obviously had to give up his fund management responsibilities. And that was obviously was quite a tangled saga, the Neil Woodford saga last year, before the coronavirus began to change the whole environment. Um, but of course, the departure of Neil Woodford had implications for the investment trust sector as well, because Woodford Patient Capital Trust uh, was a trust that he set up and has now been handed over to Schroders to manage. And there's been some important news this week about what is happening there. Perhaps you could update us on that, Simon. So Schroeder UK Public Private announced this week that the 9% stake in the investment trust company that was owned by the open-ended fund that was previously called the Woodford Equity Income Fund, it's called the LF Equity Income Fund now, has actually placed out its stake. So it's no longer a shareholder in the Schroeder UK Public Private uh, investment trust. Now, why is that important? Because I think the market perceived it as an overhang, a stock overhang. The big open-ended fund, Woodford's uh, open-ended fund, has been liquidated over a number of uh, months. Um, it's still got a few of the uh, unquoted less liquid holdings. But this was seen by the marketplace as, as a relatively significant headwind. And many people had suggested that the uh, 50 plus percent discount that the Schroeder UK public private fund uh, cont- continues to trade on one of the things that reflected uh, was this uh, perception of a stock overhang. So that is now uh, out of the way. That 9% stake has been placed. So we'll see whether that has uh, a positive impact on that particular fund's um, share price. So when we talk about a stock overhang, what we're saying is that there is a big known seller out there who, for whatever reason, in this case, the liquidation of the open-ended fund that you mentioned, uh, is hanging over the market. That's why it's called an overhang. It's hanging over the market because everybody knows that they've got to sell their big chunk of shares at some point, and therefore nobody's going to be rushing in to buy the shares when that is still to be resolved. So as you say, if those people who say that a stock overhang was holding back the share price and responsible for the large discount, the implication will be, well, we'll find out whether they were right or not, whether that was the right interpretation or not, because presumably if it was the right interpretation, the discount would start to narrow. I'm not asking you to say whether it will or not, but it, that would be the logical implication of what you were just saying. That's correct. And and we have seen the share price up about 10% or so over the last few weeks. So there's definitely signs, green shoots, if you can put it in that respect, but frankly, it's still on a very wide discount. And um, that particular investment trust, there's still a lot of work to be done. I think it's fair to say in terms of addressing some of the uh, portfolio holdings and bringing down the gearing. So um, that was just one of the issues that that particular investment trust faces. Well, that'll be an interesting one to follow, since we know a lot of uh, individual investors in particular were persuaded to invest in in patient capital trust, as it then was, Woodford Patient Capital Trust, and they'll obviously be following that with interest. Well, let's hope that those who think that uh, better times lie ahead are correct. Let's move on then to talk about another part of the world. Shall we do that? Let's go to Japan where we've heard from a couple of Japanese specialist investment trusts in the last few days. First of all, the two questions about Japan I think we should perhaps discuss. One is, why does Japan remain a separate sector within the investment trust classification? I think there is an answer for that, but it would be interesting for you to explain that. And then after that, we might go on and look at um, uh, what's been happening to the Japanese stock market and why it often trades in a slightly different way to the rest of the world. But let's start with the Japanese sector. Why is there a distinctive Japanese sector, and indeed a Japanese smaller companies sector, 
in the investment trust classification? It's a good question. I mean, I think you might have a slightly different answer to this one than I do. I mean, my answer is that actually Japan is a very important market within the global equity sense. I mean, after the US, it's always been the second largest uh, equity market. I think China may have overtaken it, frankly, in terms of its importance in recent years. And in terms of the investment space, it's one that uh, has obviously attracted in uh, retail investors and wealth managers over the years, but it's also one that institutional investors are very interested in as well. I mean, there was a time, as you will remember, back in the 80s and, and possibly into the 90s, when Japan was the market to be invested in and had a tremendous run. And then really there was a reversal. But I still think it's a, it's a fascinating marketplace um, that offers real opportunities for active investment. Well, you're absolutely right. In the 1980s, at one point, capitalization of the Japanese stock market was more than 50% of the total world market capitalization, which is an extraordinary figure when you think about the size of the Japanese economy. It's obviously is a very large economy and indeed uh, bigger than many, uh, many other countries. But uh, it was actually dwarfed by the American economy and by Europe. But of course, that was back then. And now it's very different. I think it's historical reasons as well as the fact that it's a very important market. But tell us what they've been saying about the Japanese uh, market, the two trusts that I've referred to. Sure. So we we, we had uh, results out from uh, JP Morgan uh, Japanese, and that's the the largest uh, dedicated Japanese investment trust. Um, And it's got a pretty decent track record, but they produced results. And basically, they have seen a bit of turnover in the portfolio. So they've used this period of market disruption really as a a bit of an opportunity. I think they, they use the terminology to upgrade some of their holdings. The manager there or the investment team have a bit of a, uh, well, they certainly have a growth bias. So they're looking for high growth companies. And clearly that's probably been the right tack to take overall over the last few years. The other um, Japanese investment trust that we've heard from this week was the Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon uh, Investment Trust. And that specializes in the in the smaller company end of the Japanese market. The manager there, Praveen Kumar, a uh, very experienced investor. And again, they are very much on the kind of growth tack, but probably even more so, frankly, than the JP Morgan Fund. So the kind of areas that they're looking to invest in would be uh, obviously healthcare, but uh, online companies proving very disruptive, niche manufacturers. And again, the, the, the long-term track record of that particular fund has been strong. But Japan is an interesting uh, subsector within the investment trust world. It's, it's fair to say that we've seen discounts widen out. So in the in the larger large cap Japanese funds, they're probably averaging around about 10% at the moment, which compares with, I don't know, over the 12 month average, probably about six or seven percent. So we've certainly seen some discounts widen out. It'd be a similar story in the in the small cap space as well. Yes, I mean one of the features of Japan is obviously the fact that whenever there is some kind of market turmoil, or some disruption anyway, what tends to happen is that uh, a lot of people uh, see Japan as a relative safe haven, and in particular, the currency turns out to be quite popular. And if you're a UK investor, the fact that the Japanese currency is strong actually helps increase your returns. I suppose there's a general point there about currency diversification, which is that uh, if you are investing overseas and the currencies overseas appreciate, then that will increase your return when it's translated back into sterling. And that's another reason I think why some institutional investors are always keen to follow what's happening in Japan. But let's move on again and let's talk about something else a bit nearer home. Let's talk about an investment trust called Tritax Eurobox, a rather splendidly named investment trust. What do they do and what have they been saying when their latest announcement and uh, briefings? So they provided uh, an update this week and, and a look at actually their interim results to the period of 
31st of March. And this is a this is an interesting portfolio. So perhaps as the name would suggest, it's a property play. And it's looking at what they call kind of big boxes. So these are big sheds. I think people are very familiar with these set up. And it's basically by the size of motorways. And invariably, people like Amazon love these big sheds. They're distribution hubs, basically. Tritax Eurobox is looking um, actually on the continent in Europe. So within that particular portfolio, um, they've got 12 assets now across six countries. So it's quite a specialist play. The numbers were were pretty decent. They had uh, this is a six month period, obviously, and then NAV total return was about was just under six percent. So that's in line, or in fact, a little bit above their medium term total return target. So that's encouraging. Obviously, as always with property, we look at uh, what's been going on in terms of the dividend yield. And again, they're targeting an initial yield of um, about 4.75% to be absolutely uh, specific, which translates to a yield on their current share price of about 6.6. So again, these are, these are pretty attractive. Now, I think that realistically, because this is a relatively new company, it's only been going a few years, it'll take a, bit, a little bit longer to get to that kind of level. But I think many people would think that looking on a medium to long term view, it's still an attractive place in, in the marketplace to deploy some capital. I think those kind of big hub sites um, are going to benefit from the destruction that we're seeing across society at the moment as more and more people look to online sales and uh, the idea of having distribution hubs to kind of help make those happen. Yeah, it seems to be an investment proposition that is in the right place at the right time, you would think, given what's been going on in the world. And yet, I think it's fair to say that the trust still trades on a pretty hefty discount, which strike me, on the face of it at least, as, as a little surprising, given that um, the prospects do seem quite reasonable and the yield seems useful as well. But maybe there's a story in there about gearing as well, is there? Is that part of the reason? Or is it uh, just the fact that it's taken time for investors to get to know this uh, particular company? Well, the discount is probably not too far off 20% at the moment. So just to put some context on that, we've seen uh, discounts on property funds, particularly UK commercial, to be fair, at significantly wider levels than 20%. And, and I think that's the real story here, that most property plays have been derated. I think they're seen as economically sensitive, which I think is a fair uh, point at this moment in the cycle, and, and they've been priced accordingly. But I think it comes down to how long-term is, is your perspective on this. Clearly, there are a lot of retail plays, particularly in retail property, that probably justify their wide discounts, frankly. But if you can take a long-term view and uh, a little bit of discount volatility, then then I suspect some people would, would argue that it's worth looking through that and, and taking a different time uh, measure on it. A couple of others I wanted to mention. We, we've talked a lot about infrastructure. You talked about infrastructure at the beginning of the podcast in terms of uh, explaining why the investment trust sector has done relatively well this year compared to the all share index. We've also heard from a couple of other infrastructure groups in the last few days. There's perhaps a, a quite a well-known one, which is always known as Hickel, Hickel Infrastructure. Perhaps you might explain what uh, Hickel stands for and does. And also we've heard from the Renewables Infrastructure Group, both of which are in slightly different business models. But let's start with the Hickel. And perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about Hickel, what it is, what it does, and uh, where it stands in the spectrum of infrastructure trust. Hickel uh, Infrastructure is probably got the longest track record of all the infrastructure plays. Now, it's got a market cap of over £3 billion, so it will be the largest infrastructure play. Um, and it had its annual results out this month, so the 12 months to the end of March. 
and its NAV was actually down about 3%, but on a total return basis, so that's when the dividend is factored in, it was up uh, on a 2% basis. So, uh, you know, in a difficult period, it was a credible set of results. The yield, the dividend is, is a key part of, of infrastructure. And when we talk about infrastructure, different infrastructure funds played in, in different ways. But in the case of Hickel, they're quite exposed to what we call demand-based assets. So they will set up projects, uh, I'm just thinking an example, like a toll road, for instance, um, and make sure that that toll road is operational, all the rest of it. And as long as people are using it, they will um, almost certainly get a revenue from it. Now, clearly at the moment, because of the disruption that COVID-19 is causing, those demand-based assets are, are struggling. They are economically sensitive, um, and that will have repercussions. It's had repercussions on some of their valuations, hence the slightly more difficult results. But the dividend was covered. It's an 8.25p dividend. It was actually covered in the period, and uh, it's still yielding around about 5%. So um, what they've done is they've reduced their dividend guidance going forward. Normally, what tends to happen is they say, we're going to look to grow our dividend by a certain percentage. They've actually reined that in a little bit. But the intention is that for their next financial year, so financial year 2021, they do not expect to see a cut. So, And this is quite representative of this subsector of the marketplace. And this is one of the reasons why investors um, still very much like the asset class and why um, all these funds in the infrastructure space are trading on premium ratings because of the dividends that they offer and because of the reasonable degree of uh, dividend certainty they provide. So there is a big contrast, therefore, as you say, between these infrastructure funds, which most of them trade on premiums, and all the property funds, or most of the property funds, which are trading on significant discounts. There was one other point I noted about Hickel's announcement results. It said they've changed the discount rate. Perhaps you might explain what that means, because obviously one of the problems with these infrastructure funds is they tend to be long-life investments they're making, and therefore you're trying to value, as an investor, you're trying to value looking forward a significant number of years. And what's called the discount rate is very relevant to how you value these things. So I guess there's two issues here for infrastructure funds. First of all, who is making the valuations? I guess the uh, any cynics out there might suggest that uh, if you're making the valuations yourself, you might sort of err on the optimistic side. And the second point is, well, what difference does a discount rate make when you uh, when you change them? And why and when do firms make changes in their valuation discount rates? It's a very good point. So when to take a step back, an NAV for a standard investment trust company, the valuations will invariably be on a, a mark-to-market basis. So if you have a portfolio of equities, it's very simple. You look at the share price of equities on any particular day. There's a snapshot of prices, and you can price out your NAV for your investment trust companies. With infrastructure, by their definition, they are long-term illiquid assets. So they are valued on a, what's called a mark-to-model basis. And this is where the discount rate comes in because the, the model, and these, these can be quite complicated models, look at the predicted cash flows over 20, 25 years and then apply a discount rate. And the basis behind it is that um, you know, 100 pounds collected today is worth more than 100 pounds 10 years into the future. Clearly, there's inflationary effects and another, other factors as well. And that's what the discount rate is is trying to get to. Now, I think it's fair to say, and this is probably, uh, as you just alluded to, you know, do we trust the discount rates? For a start, they do tend to be audited. They are obviously put in the public domain. And uh, we as analysts can compare different discount rates across the piece to see who's doing what and who's been a little bit more aggressive. But basically, I think our, our starting point is that valuations or discount rates tend to be relatively conservative. 
So in other words, they're not overvaluing their portfolios. Um, why do we say that? What evidence is there to support that? Because basically when these infrastructure funds, and I'm talking in general terms now, but whenever they've come to sell some of the assets or, or test the secondary market, in other words, actually find out what the pricing is of these particular assets, invariably uh, the pricing is higher than the carrying value that they have within their portfolios. And this leads us to believe that actually these assets are conservatively valued. Again, intuitively, this kind of makes sense because what the managers of infrastructure assets want is they want a relatively stable uh, asset value. They don't necessarily want it kind of going up and down with the vagaries of the secondary market. They want to give you steady, hopefully incremental growth over a long period of time. But um, as I said, I think our overall impression is that they tend to be conservatively valued and then they will change different elements of the discount rate uh, within that to ensure that that is the outcome. That's good to hear. I suppose there is another related point, which is that, of course, the discount rate you uh, use in any kind of valuation of future cash flows, uh, anybody who's been to do a business school course will know this, that the higher the discount rate you use, the lower the present value of your investment is going to be. Now, there is an argument, I guess you could make, that at the moment, the kind of discount rates that are being used by Hickel and by other infrastructure funds are still pretty high when you consider that the interest rates on government bonds and indeed generally have fallen to very low levels, lowest level than we've seen for many, many years. Uh, We've got very low, indeed, in some cases, negative interest rates. And yet we're continuing to use high, relatively high positive discount rates. There could be an argument, you could say that in kind of low interest rate environment, that maybe some of these discount rates are too high. Would you give any credence to that view? Or is it actually mistaken? If you look at before we had this incredible period of very low interest rates, in other words, go back before the uh, global financial crisis, uh, the, the number of infrastructure funds were far, far less at that stage. But you know, to your point, the discount rates that they were using to value their assets weren't massively dissimilar to the, the discount rates they're using today. They might have been 8 or 9%, but there wasn't a you know, significant step change, bearing in mind that a large element of the discount rates going back to, say, 2007 uh, was what's called the risk-free rate. I'm, I'm kind of conscious we're getting into quite technical stuff here. So yeah, what's that's... tended to happen over the years, is you, you point out, the risk-free rate, the kind of guilt level, is actually now absolutely de minimis. So what they've done to counter that is to build up the risk-free rate. So is it smoke and mirrors? Is it a little bit of accounting magic? Well, quite possibly. I think some people would probably agree with you. My personal view is that I think I'd rather have a relatively stable uh, asset value, as long as it's clear how it's been arrived at, i.e. they publish their discount rates, than have considerable volatility on an asset value basis. So some people will argue that the fact that they all trade on premiums and sometimes significant premiums can be justified by the fact that they have this conservative valuation methodology. But as soon as you get into mark to model as opposed to mark to market, which is clearly impossible in the case of infrastructure assets, there's always a degree of ambiguity. Well, we can all remember what happened to mark to uh, model valuations uh, in the run up to the global financial crisis, because they were also used in valuing some of these exotic uh, financial uh, instruments that uh, investment banks in particular were investing in. So we know that there's always a possible encounter with reality at some point, I guess, but it's much less likely with this kind of asset where you've got, you know, solid uh, bricks and mortar in the ground or trunk roads in the ground, so on. So I think we we could say it's certainly not as bad a problem as it is there. But I guess my final question on that particular point would be, as an analyst, part of your job obviously is to look at the different valuation 
methodologies that uh, these kind of trusts employ uh, and to compare them across you know different companies uh, and also of course to use your own models to try and work out whether the share prices are too high or too low can you just briefly explain what what you do in that i mean how many cases would you actually be creating your own model to try and get a rough idea of whether the models that are being used by the companies are fair in your view it depends is the short answer and it depends because of the level of information that they provide on the underlying portfolios so when you when you look at this you can make various assumptions in terms of the cash flows going forward and you can take into account a number of different factors. And to be fair, the level of disclosure that the infrastructure funds have, have provided over the years has, has improved as time has gone on. So many of them now will give you sensitivity analysis uh, dependent on the various different factors. So for instance, as I'm sure you're aware, corporation tax has been a factor in terms of the valuations. It's one of the kind of leakages, if you, if you will. And the fact that the corporation tax rate uh, has changed or is likely to change has uh, an implication for NAVs as well. So yeah, it's absolutely one of the things that, that that we look at and we build models out on it and test their assumptions as well. But it, it is an art, it's not a science. And I think for certainly for institutional investors, they want to have a gauge of how aggressive people are being with their, with their accounting modeling. And as I said before, that our kind of overall feeling is that people are invariably looking to value these things on a, on a conservative basis. Yes, and I think my certainly my experience will bear that out as well. So I think it is a fair point. And of course, they also have peer group pressure. They've got to stay competitive with other similar kind of trusts. And if they were stepping out of line, being so obviously uh, perhaps too optimistic or too generous to themselves, I think they would find that the long-term cost of being out of line and being uh, in, that, in that way would outweigh the, uh, the short-term benefit. So finally this week, I'd like to end by just talking about Perhaps uh, something we don't always talk about. We're all uh, investors. We're all optimistic about the future. But one of the features of the uh, investment trust landscape is that investment trusts do disappear. If they don't perform well, they tend to disappear. They either get merged with another investment trust or sometimes they even go out of business. And there's one which gave an update on what it's doing, which used to be a very well-known investment trust called Electra. And they are perhaps a shadow of their former selves. Uh, they're down to the last, uh, I think it's three investments. Uh, perhaps you could just give us a brief summary of the history of Electra and what's been going on there and what they're doing now to make sure that their eventual demise, if you like, will be of maximum benefit to their shareholders. Yes, Electra Private Equity has been around an awfully long time. It's a, we'd kind of label it as a direct private equity fund. So it's one that makes uh, investments directly in unlisted uh, companies. Over the long term, um, it had performed very strongly, had a number of very successful uh, investments. Uh, A number of years ago, it got into a a bit of a battle with Edward Bramson of Sherborne Investors, who, uh, as I'm sure some people are aware, he's uh, currently got Barclays in his sights. In the case of Electra, it ended up with um, him building a stake of uh, just short of 30% in in the company and effectively taking over the management of the company to a greater or lesser extent. So the, the previous investment team, uh, Electra Partners, rolled off and formed their own business. And a lot of the holdings were, were sold. So you're really left with the rump of the portfolio. And to this day, there are probably three key holdings left, of which by far the largest is TGI uh, Fridays, which I'm, I'm sure most people know, the, uh, the popular restaurant chain. 
and that's really the problem with Electra at the moment, that they have only got three holdings left. Um, a number of them are struggling. Obviously, TGI Fridays um, uh, is in a difficult place at the moment. It's also got a stake in a business called Hotter Shoes, which is struggling clearly in this current environment. And uh, they're effectively in, in what we call managed wind down. So the intention, I think, by the end of 2021 is the latest date that they're stipulated. They will look to return capital to shareholders, though obviously in the here and now, it's a little bit of a difficult environment to affect uh, any kind of sale presses. And I, I suspect that's not where they're at. So this week came the announcement that they're looking to make a technical change to their distributable reserve. So as and when they are in a position to return capital to shareholders, that'll just be a little bit easier to affect. I think it's fair to say that the experience Electra's had is a good example of how the uh, the investment trust sector has this sort of built-in regeneration capacity. I mean, the performance of the shares until the, the recent crisis has not been that bad since uh, Mr. Branson got involved. Whether or not you approve of these so-called activist investors coming along and forcing the management to change the way they're operating. But I mean, his calculation would have been that at the end of the day, when they've sold all these other investments they had, that they will end up making more money than they would have done if they'd stuck with the investment trust the way it was before. So there's a kind of sort of corporate Darwinism at work here. And he just happens to be a kind of predator. But it's uh, unfortunately, they haven't completed their disposal program before this latest market turmoil. So it's obviously going to put back the date when that uh, final reckoning comes. But do you actually see this kind of corporate Darwinism as a, as, a, as a healthy feature of the investment trust sector? And indeed, is it actually a relatively new phenomenon in the sector? It's not new. I certainly, I think for the, the, the last 20 years, there have been periods when we have seen activist investors take advantage of those investment trusts with, with wide discounts uh, and uh, agitate for change of manager or return of capital or even to wind a particular investment company up. And there are some instances where I think it's been done in a slightly underhand way, let's put it that way. But overall, I would suggest it's one of the reasons why the investment trust sector is a relatively efficient sector. So you can see an investment trust that has a kind of plain vanilla portfolio of equities. It's highly unlikely that's going to be trading on a particularly wide discount for an extended period of time because there are these activists on the sidelines who will come in and build positions and then as I say, agitate for change to, to effectively narrow those discounts. So I think overall, the sector has benefited from that. I mean, as I say, there were a number of instances that have probably left a bit of a nasty taste uh, in our mouths, but uh, I think it has been um, overall to the benefit of the sector. Indeed. Thank you, Simon, as always, for another interesting and obviously educational discussion this week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.